0: Inside Sponsorship. The show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programs and achieve best practice. Every time you discuss Asia and the opportunities it presents, it's hard not to get overwhelmed by the numbers involved. They are truly staggering and just continue to grow. There's no doubt that Asia has been growing in terms of sport and with that sponsorship as well. However, It would seem that lately there is a continued trend towards major events being hosted in Asia. Further, we are starting to see more Asian brands sponsoring large events outside of their home markets, despite that being what they want to focus on, such as China's 1573 sponsoring the Australian Open and China's Mongyu Dairy sponsoring the FIFA World Cup. Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, and episode 66. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and it is great to have you listening in as Adam Hodge, Head of Planning and Strategy, APAC, at Octagon, joins us to take us inside sponsorship of Asian events. But before we go too much further, I'd like to give a shout out to Joe Bakmutski, who got in touch to tell me... I'm only a few episodes in and I love your sponsorship podcast. I'm a cancer survivor in Melbourne who created a podcast to help other folks dealing with cancer and I'm looking for potential sponsors for my projects moving forward and it's a world I know nothing about so I love listening to you and your guests to get a taste for it. Thanks for doing what you do. Great stuff Joe and it is great also to hear a fellow podcaster doing awesome things and also loving what we do on this show. That's why we do it so keep up the good work before we hear from adam hodge at octagon this time around daniel ferguson hill sponsors commercial manager for australasia has taken a look and blogged about the five trends in sponsorship that we're not talking about here's daniel daniel ferguson is it still too late to say happy new
1: year oh, i think so i think three weeks is probably the cutoff period
0: okay merry february
1: I like that one
0: one. (laughs) So you're joining us to chat about your latest blog Which is the five trends in sponsorship That we're not talking about Let's talk about Trendy On a scale of 1 to 10 How Trendy do you think Sam Irvine thinks he is?
1: Uh, Definitely an 11, if he was answering that question.
0: (laughs) We can uh, send all feedback to info at coresoftware.com. Now, back to business. This is the time of year people start getting the crystal ball out and making some predictions and and some observations about trends for the year, isn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. And, And this blog piece is all about trying to explore some content that, isn't being talked about enough or, or even understood, particularly with all of those trends in sponsorship reports bouncing around, around across LinkedIn email. And look, for, for the most part, these are great if we pay attention to what's being said and implement changes relevant to ourselves. But we also know, however, that plenty of us just read the report and then either delete it or save it in a research folder <laughs> somewhere which, you know, look, I'm guilty of and uh, I would dare say that the majority of listeners are as well. So, um, look, sometimes the trends are things that we don't see coming. Uh, Some are applicable to our business and others just couldn't be any less relevant to us or further away in the future to to warrant any attention. So, um, and and look, nine times out of ten, we can usually predict what some of these reports are going to say because as an industry, we're already talking about these trends. What they don't do is explore what we can't see or what's beneath these trends what's driving them and how are they going to impact us on a day-to-day level as well as from a strategic perspective
0: okay well let's let's dive in and start to to look at them from that perspective let's take a look at those five trends in sponsorship do you think that we're not talking about or talking about enough what's number one
1: Number one is team structures are changing. Uh, The best rights holders split their sponsorship teams into selling and servicing. Uh, Success on this side of a deal is now a much more complex beast than it ever has been. Hitting sales targets is not enough if we're not consistently fulfilling and delivering the deals at a really high standard. So this trend is all about a a seamless transition from pre-sale conversations to complete fulfilment. And the best rights holders have split their teams into two to accommodate this. You know, if you ask anyone who sat on both sides or if they're doing both responsibilities at the same time, they'll tell you it's just too hard to juggle both of them. Arsenal, Sydney Swans, Live Nation, they're all examples of sponsorship teams who are just absolutely nailing this across various industries. They split their teams to maximise the skill sets of both sides. So, for example, selling sponsorship is going to rely on imagination, negotiation and persistence. Servicing, however, is completely different. It requires attention to detail, flexibility, and probably a bit of personality because no one likes a boring whip meeting. <laughs> so when you know when we split the teams, we can fully dedicate time to sourcing and securing new opportunities while also maximising and fulfilling existing ones at, at exactly the same time. So, you know, if we're doing both of those things correctly, there's probably going to be time to scale deals in there if everything goes according to plan.
0: So, a question for you around those team structures changing and being split between selling and servicing and fulfillment. Is your observation of those people that are doing that and doing it well, that the staff in those roles are much happier and content and focused? Because we know sponsorship managers in a lot of organizations have to both be selling and servicing at the same time. And sometimes their focus and and attention might be split and they can't really focus properly on things individually. Are you finding that those teams that do split it are generally happier and more focused?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when they're split, you'll often find that time management as a skill is so much better when you're either focusing on selling or servicing. And then, you know, at the same time, the pressure is sort of a little bit less uh, if you're focusing on sort of one of those Responsibilities rather than both at the same time because it's look, we've all been there where you know you've got to go and find that new deal, but at the same time, you've got an existing sponsor that wants you to go and work on a new campaign. It's just, you know, there's not enough hours in the day.
0: Mm. So, that's that's the first one. Team structures are changing. What's number two in your view?
1: The two is sponsorship strategies are just getting bigger. Uh, Deals need more than one strategy and a handful of overarching objectives these days. Uh, We've seen this concept rear its head consistently, but it's probably not prevalent enough. Uh, Even though it gets, you know, this speaks to both rights holders and brands at the same time. With sponsorship deals becoming more complex, uh, there's an increasing need to develop sub-strategies and objectives for each category within a sponsorship deal. Uh, For example, activations, experiential, digital, etc we can't expect to still bundle together different benefits and accepts that we will achieve some cliche overarching objectives. Most of the time, a sponsorship deal for any brand will form part of an existing marketing plan that's either used to further leverage its reach, engagement and exposure. So keep in mind that the use of traditional assets like ticketing or hospitality or advertising can't help a brand achieve the same thing a digital campaign or something experiential can.
0: I think that's a great point because there's a lot of pressure on brands in their broader marketing to be showing return on objective and return on investment and as that spotlight shines internally on the people that are responsible for those things they're going to be looking to rights holders who they sponsor to help them get better return on investment and objective and it's not as you said just about bundling things up and hope it achieves those cliche things that we always felt the brands felt good about achieving it needs to be much more granular than that, so that's that's great. Sponsorship strategies are getting bigger. What's number three?
1: Three is ownership of measurement is changing. Uh, put simply, brands need to take some ownership of sponsorship measurement, and I'm going to credit this to a podcast guest of ours that's coming up uh, in Adam Hodge because we were talking about this only last week. With most sponsorship deals, the rights holder owns the measurement. And it's usually a budgeted expense whereby a third party conducts an audit of the portfolio and provides insights accordingly. Think Nielsen and futures as an example. The fact that brands traditionally have no input into this process for me is just mind-boggling simply because a rights holder can make a report, say whatever they want to. Uh, If a brand isn't measuring the deal as well, then they likely take this report as gospel. Uh, So the less involvement a brand has, in that data uh, that measures success, the higher the risk. So in, in an ideal world, brands can pay for their own research to then cross-reference what's presented by the rights holder, but this can get quite expensive at the best of times. Uh, a much easier and cost-effective method is splitting the costs as part of the sponsorship deal. That way, neither party stands to gain more depending on what the data suggests. So. There's some very smart minds driving this trend from the agency space, which means the bigger brands are already thinking about this if they're not doing it already.
0: And it is a dangerous game to play if you're the rights holder and you're only managing uh, that measurement and reporting because even if you're doing it with the right uh, intent, we're not suggesting that people uh, are trying to necessarily manipulate Data when they're presenting it to a sponsor. But if they're not getting it right for whatever reason and there are mistakes in it that are non intentional, if a brand does decide to start taking ownership of measurement as well by themselves without interacting with the rights holder, then it could come to a head very, very quickly, couldn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we've touched on. So a couple of these concepts in previous blogs and podcasts that, you know, if, if a rights holder has a bad year, their first thought is to try and make that report look like they've had a good one. Uh, and then, you know, in the same breath that, you know, maybe if the rights holder and the, the brand are working together uh, on the report, then, you know, I would dare say throughout the year that they've actually achieved some, some pretty good things together uh, because they're all on the same page.
0: It's a good point. So the ownership of measurement is changing and we need to actually, ironically, we all need to take ownership of it together as a, a joint responsibility. That's number three. What's number four?
1: Four is the structure and need for sponsorship proposals are changing. <laughs> as an industry, we send way too many proposals. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was talking, I've been talking to a couple of brands recently and some of them are telling me that they still receive printed proposals in the mail, Some don't have the right name, the right company, and more often than not, when a rights holder doesn't receive a response, they just send another one to someone higher in a position that they can find on LinkedIn. So, you know, you probably guessed already that this trend speaks loudly to to rights holders, Uh, and it might sound a bit direct, but stop wasting time and resources creating that one magic proposal template that will go out to thousands of prospects They've seen it all before and chances are you're not the only one who sent them a proposal in the past few weeks. Not to mention that most proposals will follow a similar pattern in promoting the rights holder the whole time as opposed to focusing on what the brand wants to achieve and how they can help. So this trend will probably help rights holders hit the rewind button. Um, They need to do an audit of their audience, who their members are, who their customers are, or, or who buys the products that they sell. Look at their purchasing habits, um, their behaviors, and also the categories that they currently sell in. Once they've found a, an audience that they haven't connected with, then reach out to brands who are in this space and ask for advice. And note I say advice, not pitch. Um, get specific on who you want to reach and why. Um, but if the conversations are constructive enough, then you're not going to need to create or send a proposal to get in the door. You might get asked for something formal once you've started fleshing out ideas. However, this is something that really needs to be created via a brief from the brand and not just a stack of info slides.
0: It feels like we talk about this point ad nauseum as an industry, but we still see it so much. When are people actually going to start listening? When are they going to change their behavior, do you think?
1: That's <laughs> a good question. It's a tough uh, and one. I'm sure, I'm sure there's plenty of people on the brand side saying, please hurry up.
0: I think that's a good point. I think that is a good point that there's people that you're wanting to connect with who are saying, please stop it. Please hurry up and change. And uh, any good marketer knows that they should listen and start with their audience. So that's number four, the structure and need for sponsorship proposals are changing and there's a real thirst for it from the brand side. What's the fifth one and the last one?
1: So five is probably the most important to a rights holder, and this is going to speak to you know people more in, in those exec roles. But the source of sponsorship revenue is changing. Traditional benefits are starting to leave big holes in budgets. And to frame this, the trend speaks directly to sponsorship sales versus sponsorship marketing. Uh, and and that's a discussion seems to be a, a bit of a buzz theme at the moment uh, in conversations, but. If, I'm a rights, if you're a rights holder listening, do a quick audit of all the sponsorship deals that you've signed in the past three years. Chances are that the revenue attributed to standard traditional benefits like ticketing, hospitality, and EDM advertising isn't as high as it once was. And the quick tip, the solution is not to up the ante and try and sell more. Brands are just not as interested in these benefits like they used to be. Brands spend a lot of time and resources staying up to date with their customers or members' needs and wants And to do this, they have to adapt how they connect and engage or or sell their products. If they're doing it right, the benefits they receive through sponsorship will fall into their engagement strategies. So before your next budgeting cycle starts, and if you're not doing this already, break your budget down by benefit category. Look at your hard costs to deliver each type, the value you sell them at, and even your margins. I highlight the top 10 benefits that have performed consistently over that three-year period. And then highlight the bottom five that have either plateaued or declined over the same time. But straight away, you're going to gain insight as to where the bulk of the revenue comes from and what needs improving or replacing. And if you do need to replace benefits, make sure you consult your sponsors about their engagement strategies at the same time. This is going to give you some great ideas on what you can create.
0: Outstanding. So just going back through those quickly, number one, those team structures are changing. Number two, sponsorship strategies are getting bigger. Number three, ownership of measurement is changing. Number four, the structure and need for sponsorship proposals are changing or have changed and people need to change themselves. Number five, the source of sponsorship revenue is changing. How do we tie all that together, Daniel?
1: These are the trends that we're not talking about enough at the moment. And for me, they might strike a chord with some and others may completely disagree. Uh, Everybody's entitled to an opinion. But the reality is that each of these impact us on a day-to-day level as well as from a strategic point. And if we address them head-on and correctly, I can guarantee you you'll set yourself apart from the competition.
0: Excellent. Now, listeners, if you'd like to read through that in slow time, in your own time, just head along to sponsor.net, head to the resources section and the blog section under that where you can read Daniel's blog in detail. Daniel, any uh, trips coming up that you want to tell people about? I'm in
1: Adelaide, uh, beginning of Feb. Um, I haven't been back there for a long time, so my partner's uh, already got me buying some Hague's chocolate on the way back.
0: (laughs) Very good. So if you're in Adelaide and you want to catch up with Daniel for a chat, a bite to eat, a coffee, just get in contact and I'm sure he will fit you in. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, mate. Good to chat again.
0: Adam Hodge from Octagon is a professional planner and strategist in the sport and entertainment marketing sector with over 15 years' experience. Now, during this time, he's worked client, publisher, media, and agency side across four countries and three continents. He's worked with and for brands including Telstra, Lion, Kieran, Diageo, MasterCard, Standard Chartered, Unilever, Samsung, Red Bull, ANZ, QuickFlix, Premier League, Sky, and EMI Music on brand and creative development, digital strategy through the line media, sponsorship selection, management and leverage, consumer research and content production and distribution projects. Adam is also a regular speaker at marketing, planning and sponsorship conferences and contributes to industry publications and he joins us now to discuss Asian event sponsorship. Here's Adam. Adam Hodge, welcome to the show. Your LinkedIn profile says that, and I quote, a digital native with an offline heritage. As a digital native, what's your favorite app on your phone?
2: Is it too early for a plug? No, no. <laughs> we, um, we, uh, we've been working with uh, with Standard Chartered and Liverpool Football Club for many years, and just a couple of weeks ago, we um, we released a, a new app for them called Stand Red, which... Given the fact that we've been working on it for so long, is pretty close to my heart. So, it's uh, it's certainly one that that I love. I'm a I'm a I'm a big football fan, mm-hmm. so uh, it, uh, it it touches a, a passion with me. Um, uh, I guess if I'm if I'm not being too pluggy this early on, from a functional point of view, Microsoft Teams is something that we use here at Octagon as a, as a collaborative work tool. Um, it's only kind of new to our business, but we've been using it for a while now, and I find it really makes my life a whole lot easier when we're particularly working across multiple offices and and uh, and trying to, to work across time zones teams has been great and then i guess from a real personal point of view this time of year the nfl app and the australian open apps get a real hammering from me it's uh it's exciting times for both tennis and, and american football which are two sports i love so they're certainly getting plenty of play time on on my phone
0: Indeed it is. It is an exciting time of year. Now, in a previous life, you were head of marketing at QuickFlix, which is an online DVD rental store, very, very popular before services like Netflix launched. What's your favorite movie?
2: Oh, wow. You are really getting an insight into uh, into my cheesy uh, entertainment preferences this early on, aren't you? Um, I think that's a pretty easy one. <laughs> Ferris Bueller's Day Off.
1: Oh, It's very a, good.
2: Uh, it's a it's a guilty pleasure um, I think uh, I think John Hughes might have basically raised me as a as a pre-teen in the in the 80s um, and that's that's definitely a favorite
0: great choice these days you are the head of planning and strategy APAC at Octagon what does that mean specifically in terms of what you do day to day
2: yeah sure um, it's it's kind of it's somewhat of a unique title in the in the sponsorship world, but it's much more common in the broader advertising world. And Octagon kind of has a foot in both camps. Um, it's really, my, my role is almost 50-50 split. Um, if you look at the, the strategy side of what I do, I guess the easiest way to explain it is that I help our clients better understand the commercial side of sponsorship to make sure that they're doing the right deals for the right reasons under the right conditions. And that can be quite functional. Um, a lot of it's quite mathematical and scientific. There's a lot of sort of contractual legal sides to that part of the business. The other half, which is the the, the planning bucket, that's the more creative part of my day. That's where I really take on the role as the middleman between our account service teams, the the, the teams that, that look after the clients directly, and then our creative teams, our, our art directors and our copywriters and our producers and directors. And that's where I add in kind of the research and the insight, which brings to life a client brief and helps us produce the most creative campaigns around those sponsorships. So whether that's, helping our creative teams to come up with a great bit of information a great stat or a great bit of insight that they can build a tv commercial around or a series of branded content films or whether that's a an activation on the ground be it an event at the australian open at the moment or maybe something at the cricket or it could even go down sort of the the digital and the corporate hospitality parts but it's really bringing that initial spark of thought to our creative teams to then let them do what they do and i guess the the, the final part of the role is, is being a being a regional remit means that I spend a lot of those days in airports, hotels, and, and in the backs of Ubers, because those two functions are then delivered right across the Asia-Pac the region, so a lot of time out of Sydney in those other markets.
0: As you said, you spend a lot of time in airports and in the back of Ubers. It's a big and a wide-ranging job over a large geographical area. Apart from the travel, what does a typical week or a month look like for you? And what sort of team do you lead across that geographical area?
2: Yeah, It's it's actually a pretty small team. Um, a lot of people are surprised. We we're, we're really lean at Octagon. It's something that, that we demand of ourselves and our clients demand as well. So rather than having kind of lots of bums and seats um, sitting in offices around the region, we really prefer the model of hiring a smaller, um, more expert team, and then we take them where the demand is. And given that such a large percentage of our work is attached to sport and entertainment properties, and those properties tend to burn hot for a a particular period of time, as I mentioned earlier, things like NFL and and tennis and cricket are really hot this time of year for a few weeks or a few months, and then they will geographically and the attention will move somewhere else... We have a, a small team. There's there's, uh, there's three of us here based in, in the Sydney office where my, my headquarters are, um, and then I've got two based up in, in Singapore. But those guys are, are very mobile, and they'll move around, uh, particularly over the next 12 to 18 months. Those guys, including myself, will increasingly see themselves in places like Tokyo with, with a lot of big global sporting and, and entertainment events in that market. But, yeah, we're certainly... We're not a team of people that are kind of just sat at desks waiting for the work to come to us. We're we're very reactive and go to
1: where the business is and, and I think that's the right way to, to to run a business these days.
0: Now your focus is on the APAC region and over the next few years, as you alluded to, the focus starts to shift, not just during different times during the year, but in the years to come, we're going to see a cluster of major sporting events in Asia. And those include things like the Rugby World Cup in Japan, the FIBA World Cup in China and the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. There's a trend there. Why do you think event organisers and global sporting bodies are sending major events to be hosted in Asia?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it certainly is a trend, and, and don't forget the big one. We've got the next two Olympic cycles in Asia as well. We've of got course. summer games in Tokyo and, and winter games in Beijing. So it, it is absolutely the eyes of the, the sporting world are on are on Asia for the next almost decade now. Um, look, I, I think it's really simple. The, the events are being hosted here because the bulk of the world's population is here. And I use the word sparingly, but to a certain extent, the region's been a little bit overlooked in the past, and I think it's just a little bit of a correction. There's a huge demand. There's a a massively, rapidly growing middle class in places like mainland China, and and those markets are are really engaging with these sorts of properties, and and the rights holders, both from a commercial point of view and also from growing their individual properties, are going where the demand is.
0: At Octagon, you work with a number of clients executing their sponsorship plans in Asia. In a general sense, how has this experience been for you? Are the opportunities the same or are they really different to other markets? And if you could offer some examples or one example with some insight, that'd be really great.
2: Yeah, sure. At the basic level, the theory is the same. The sponsorship is just one of their many number of marketing tools. And regardless of where you are around the world, the the theory should be the same. Now, in in practice, it isn't always. And I guess without without using a too broad of a brush in the the response, I typically tend to refer to this market being the APAC market as as probably being five to ten years behind some of the more mature markets of of the US and and Europe. A good example in how there can be some relatively fundamental differences is in where the attention is placed both by the rights holders and the sponsors in those different markets. So for example, in the US, sponsors have come to a point where they pay much more value and attention to the IP that comes with the partnership rather than just looking at media exposure. If you look at a lot of the big American sports and even a lot of the global sports, including things like the examples you mentioned before around World Cups and, and Olympics, they're not they're not heavily branded environments in fact a lot of them are completely clean environments and they still demand the biggest sponsorship dollars in the world so these are not brands who are going to these properties thinking here's a space I'm going to go to get my logo on TV for a very long time and I'm going to get a huge amount of exposure that way they're really looking at it as using the association with the event to say something about their brand to deliver a message rather than just deliver media Um, and I think a key difference in Asia is that we're still probably that five to ten years behind that approach and some brands, and it, it is changing, it's, it's evolving very quickly, but some brands in this market are still seeing sponsorship primarily as a media buy. They're seeing it as how do I get my name on, on a shirt or on a stadium or on a building or on a on a piece of grass or a piece of signage because that's a great way for me to, to, to build my business. If more people see my logo, then then surely I'm going to become a household name and there is some logic to that but to be frank using sponsorship as a media buy is is a really inefficient way of buying media um sports and entertainment sponsorships come with a premium attached to them because you're buying into an environment that people are so passionate about it's more than just buying an ad for 30 seconds in a tv show that i i may have a passing interest in you're buying an association with something that goes to the the core of my being to to a passion um so to just look at sponsorship as, a, as another media channel, the way you would a, a radio ad or an outdoor ad or a TV ad, is not only using it to its best, not using it to its best benefit, you'll also be paying a premium for that. And I think that, that kind of at its core is, is where the APAC market is starting to make some realizations that it, it is a channel that has its unique strengths and benefits. And it's not just about buying eyeballs, it's about buying the association that comes with these big events, big teams,
0: big properties. In saying all of that, is it true then that you are forced to use different metrics in Asia as opposed to non-Asian markets or do you try and use the metrics that, that w- we use in non-Asian markets to try and draw them towards that change or are they really just focused on the old school traditional, this is the media exposure we got?
2: Yeah, look, it's it's a good question and it's a little bit circular because you're right, the I guess the traditional base metric for measuring the success of a sponsorship in this market is still media exposure. And that's typically calculated relatively simplistically how long your logo was on screen. We then calculate that as as if you had bought a 30-second TV commercial, what would that have cost you? We add up all the seconds that were on screen, multiply by the cost of that second to buy as an ad, and then you get a number. And if if that number is bigger than the number that you paid the rights holder at the beginning, then simplistically there's a, a tick next to the partnership sophisticated sponsors don't stop there. It certainly is a measure that should be measured and will continue to be. And and there's an entire industry with with the likes of of Nielsen Sport and Future Sport and Entertainment and Kantar and and those guys who've built very important, very successful businesses around understanding and measuring that. But at least particularly here at Octagon, we like to talk about return objectives rather than just return on investment. A return on investment, a financial calculation, that is as simplistic as that is, is very important but it really depends on the reason why a partner has gone into a sponsorship rather than applying an arbitrary number all the time. Well, I was going to Um, ask about
0: that because offline you made a really interesting point about return on objective, that being that globally the concept of return on investment almost needs to sit beneath return on objective as its own objective rather than being standalone. What what did you mean by that and and why do you think that's important?
2: Yeah, look... I think it comes back to the fact that historically the sponsorship industry as, a, as one of many sort of marketing verticals has been really bad at quantifying its own, its own worth, I guess. The growth of, of digital media over the last couple of decades, um, the, the likes of your Google AdWords and your display advertising and th- those things which are infinitely measurable has really forced us to look at how we quantify our channel and I think to a certain extent there's been a bit of a overcorrection. And we've moved from almost having zero financial metrics to really looking for a silver bullet, and ROI has been looked at as this silver bullet measure. Whilst, as I said before, a direct financial return is really important and should definitely be one of the key objectives, I think it's important not to judge a partnership solely on that metric. There are many direct measures that are really important and also many that are less direct and a little less tangible, which is still really important. And that's why we talk about this idea of, return on objective with the investment side of it being one of those objectives but not the only so you can think of things like how does it impact on the brand Um, is it helping us establish a particular message in market are there impacts on our staff does it make people more likely to want to work here to stay here to feel great about working here are there indirect things like can you attribute indirect sales through effective use of corporate hospitality staff pride staff retention Sometimes they get kind of pushed to the side and all that matters is how much time is our logo on the screen. Um, and I think those brands who are looking more holistically and waiting those things, saying, look,
0: With that in mind, do you think you'll see brands adopting return on investment or return on objective as the most important metric for sponsoring a major sporting event in Asia over the next few years? Will they really change their focus from more around logo time on screen? And are you yourself and Octagon really trying to push that and position that to them?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It, it, the clients that we've worked with for a long time and and. As a business, we've had some really long-term relationships, which has allowed us to see these changes happen over not just months and years, but, but decades. I mean, we've had MasterCard globally as a, as a client of ours for coming up on 32, 33 years now. So the beauty of that is you get to see how things change systematically. It's not an impact of an individual person because a lot of people both sides of the equation have, have come and gone over that time. So it looks at how an organisation as a whole is approaching the channel. And we've got similar links partnerships with, with brands all around the world of, of decades or two. And, and what we've seen is that this idea of building ROO dashboards, I guess, or, or, or measurement sheets at the outset of a partnership is really crucial to making sure that assessments are being done in a fair way. And one of the key things to it is us helping brands really be honest with themselves sometimes the reasons why partnerships can be done or one of the reasons they can be done might not be might not sound obviously like a typical corporate decision and I'll, I'll give you an example um, it's not actually a client of ours, but it's a client that I had some exposure to uh, when I was based in our Singapore office and, and I, I won't mention the, the brand names it that doesn't really matter to the story but this was a, a large financial brand in Singapore and um, there was a, a new massive stadium, a new national stadium sports stadium being built in the country a few years ago. And the government was looking for a a big naming rights partner of this big infrastructure investment. And they did the deal and and when we kind of, I guess the the pundits in the industry were kind of asking questions around, did they pay the right? Did they overpay? Did they underpay? There was a, a point made that one of the benefits that came with this partnership was that as the naming rights partner of this stadium, Um, Each year uh, on a particular day called National Day, there would be this big national parade where all the big government officials would sit in these stands and they would have parades of of military and parades of of school kids. And it was a very important day in the the Singaporean calendar. And by being the naming rights sponsor of this venue, that organisation's president was seated to the right of the, the prime minister of the country. And the importance from a a cultural and from a a status point of view of the head of this particular organization being sat to the right of the prime minister was such that a large percentage of the deal was quantified upon that statistic. Now, it's very hard to put a financial measure against that. Now, obviously, it it is important because it gives that organization a certain status. It means that when that person goes to make a next phone call to close a big multi-billion dollar funding deal, the person on the other end may take them more seriously, may be likely to take that phone call. It does have a legitimate business purpose, but it's kind of hard to, to quantify mm. how many millions of dollars do I pay for a seat for one day next to the Prime Minister of Singapore. And that's a hard thing for a company to sometimes put down on a balance sheet. So it's, it's, it's kind of an extreme example, but I use it as one because <laughs> it's important that all of these things are quantified. And even the most intangible item if you work hard, can still have some measure of, of accountability. Um, and it's important these things are written down because quite often, and particularly when we're talking about stadium partnerships, they tend to be five to seven to 10 years in length. And quite often the personal people who do the initial deal aren't the same people who are assessing it 10 years later when renewal comes around. And if a deal is done with one intention in mind, and then 10 years later measured against something totally different, it's no surprise when it doesn't come up to muster. So I think what we really push is for, and it doesn't need to be something that's made public, it needs to be an internal document, internal process for the the organisation, but to make sure that the reasons for everything are understood, they're documented, the partnership is secured based on those criteria and and valued on those criteria, and then subsequently it's measured on those same criteria.
0: In the past, it used to be Western brands sponsoring the big global events regardless of where they were held why or maybe why not do you expect to see a continued rise of asian-based brands being major sponsors of events that are in asia itself
2: i think the answer to that question is almost in the first part of the question itself that increasingly where a brand is based is becoming irrelevant as we, we're continuing to globalise, continuing to digitise, those traditional geographic borders are just really fading, and where your head office is will have a little impact on where your customers are. So quite often, finding a partnership that engages with someone's passion is the first priority, not where it happens to be based. Um, I literally, the, the room that I'm having this conversation with you in right now, just outside is our Sydney team, and... the the Super Bowl playoffs are playing at the moment and we've got a ton of people that are really interested and engaged in that sport which 10-15 years ago there would be a very small niche audience of, of American football fans in Australia but the access is now available to those properties through digital media and through different broadcast channels now means that there's actually a huge fan base for what is a quintessentially an American pastime in Australia so those geographical borders are increasingly irrelevant. And the same goes for Asia. But the Liverpool Football Club have got, they quote, 850 million fans globally, and the largest pocket of those is in Asia. So it only makes sense that those brands who are now see themselves as global sporting bodies are going to pay attention to the markets where their fans are, not
0: just the market that they happen to physically have their stadium in. For those brands that might not be that well established and they're trying to expand into different markets. Are Asian-based brands the best suited to be sponsors of large events in Asia, major events, to help them expand out of Asia? Or do these types of events, the major ones in Asia, pose better opportunities for brands in other markets to expand into Asia?
2: It's an interesting question, and, and I don't think there is a simple answer. It's it's interesting looking just at the last World Cup in, in Russia. There was quite a number of global sponsors of the FIFA World Cup that if you were outside of China, you would have no idea what they are. One of them was a Chinese milk producer. The other was a, a mobile phone handset manufacturer that unless you lived in China or India, you've probably never heard of before. But to those guys, it, it, it isn't there's a component of it which might be about expansion outside of their traditional markets and i'll give you an example of the australian open that that is the reverse of this in a second but a milk producer in china is probably not trying to look to sell their product to american markets it's not terribly transportable as a product um but they've looked at when you've got 1.3 billion people you've got the, the the largest population on the planet then you're going to get the largest slice of a pie of any global event whereas it probably doesn't work as powerfully for a brand that's, that's in a smaller country to, to consider global platforms.
0: It's almost irrelevant to that Chinese brand that anybody outside of China sees their brand associated with the event because, in theory, they would be happy if only Chinese people watched that event.
2: You're exactly right, um, and I don't know how, if you watched any of the Australian Open over the last couple of days on TV, but those who have been well, would have probably noticed some pretty heavy branding of, of a number. So it's 1573 on the, the, the signage around Margaret Court and Rod Laver Arena. And interestingly, I would hazard a guess that 99% of people who don't live in China have no idea what 1573 means. But for the, that brand, um, and the company's called Luzhou Nojiao, they're a, a, a Chinese baijiu manufacturer, which is a, 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 a spirit, a, a, an alcohol brand that is really only drunk in China. Um, very few people outside of that market have he- ever heard about the product, let alone the the individual brand of that product. But that doesn't matter to them. They are really focused on generating additional awareness and, and even more so the prestige of being associated with a global event that they're, as a brand, they're the third or fourth best known Baijiu brand in China already. So it's not an awareness issue, but what it is is they wanted to be seen as more premium, more sophisticated, more worldly, and the way you do that is to have a Chinese audience see this very local brand on the world stage of a global Grand Slam tennis event with Roger Federer in the foreground and and one of the Williams sisters on the other side. It, it gives them very rapid status where a local consumer in China is thinking, well, "Wow, this is a prestigious brand that is sponsoring events outside of China." It's a a really good example of the scale that these organizations are willing to
0: go to in order to make that kind of a, a move. And interestingly I can tell you while I, I was diligently listening to your answer, I also quickly jumped on Wikipedia. So for the listeners, this is actually really interesting. The distillery dates back to fifteen seventy three in the Ming Dynasty, and it is the oldest continuously produced Chinese liquor. And apparently it is the favourite tipple of Chinese leader. China's leader.
2: It is, and it's actually interestingly, it's the the category of liquor which is called baijiu is the largest single selling category of liquor in the world. It outsells vodka, it outsells rum, it outsells whiskey, and it's only drunk in China. So you can imagine the volume that must be consumed to, to outstrip these these global um, categories, and no one's ever heard of it.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. It says here it's worth fifteen point seven five billion US dollars. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it's, so it's, it's amazing. Considering Western brands or non-Asian brands, they want to engage in sponsorship in Asia because it's clearly a huge market. What are some of the misconceptions they have or the missteps they make when they first go into that market?
2: Um, It really tends to be not an issue. And the reason why is that a lot of these Western brands that are looking at a market like Asia, tend to be those quite sophisticated brands that have been on the global stage for a long time. I think actually what's probably more interesting is to almost look at the question in reverse, to look at when Asian brands are maybe looking into Western markets, what are the things that that some of the errors that, that they can sometimes make simply because they haven't had that exposure in the past. And I guess a couple of them is, we touched on this earlier, looking at sponsorship as a media channel. Whilst on the surface it is, it is a way to get your brand exposed to a particular type of people at a particular time. It's it's a, it's not a terribly efficient media channel if you look at it simplistically like that because of that premium that it covers for, I guess, paying for the passion that comes along with a platform like, like sports or entertainment. Another trap that, that we've seen that are coming into the space somewhat fresh is... whether that means you're a Western brand or a brand from another part of the world, um, and you are thinking of coming in, into to Asia, it's not something you've done before. Something I think that is worth considering as well also it's not underestimating the power of celebrity in Asia. In other parts of the world, from my own experience over the last 15 or so years, is that sponsorship, particularly in the world of sport, but it also does apply to, to music and, and film and, and entertainment and social responsibility, is that the, the priority has tended to be we look at sponsoring teams or clubs or leagues or or events. And then we look at the individuals involved in them, whether they are the artists or the athletes as kind of secondary. And in Asia, there really is, the power of celebrity is, is, is unbelievable. And to a certain extent, it's bigger than the game. So um, Western brands who come into Asia sometimes miss that opportunity where having a, an ambassador partnership can sometimes be as powerful or more powerful than sponsoring a team because the fans are fans of the individual player and they'll actually tend to move with the player if the player switches teams or, or does things differently. Whereas in the more established markets like the US and the UK, um, you're born into a team, you're born into a club and regardless of where the players go, your, your passion and commitment stays
0: with that club. Um, That's not necessarily the case in Asia. Hypothetical scenario for you. Let's say you've just taken on a a new global client. As you said before, they're probably quite sophisticated already. They want to be involved in major Asian-based events. Maybe they've picked one out already, but they aren't entirely sure whether it's the right one or even which one they should be involved with. What's your very first piece of advice for them? Really simple. Start with a business problem,
2: not with an event or a property or a sport. And in fact, don't even assume sponsorship is the right solution. Um, mm. This is a, it seems so simple, but it is quite often where we are first engaged with our, our brand partners that we can add the most value is to say, don't tell me that you, you want to sponsor the cricket and then come to me asking for the best way to do that. We are much more useful when you come to us and say, The problem is, in market X, our competitor Y is outselling us three to one, and we've identified that one of the reasons behind it is a lack of trust in our product's efficacy. Great, that is now a, a business challenge, that is now a marketing problem, and we can help with expertise in our part of the marketing mix, being sponsorship, to say, what levers have we got that can help solve that problem? And it may be, that if, we're, if we're fortunate, there may be a direct lever where you can say, look, if, you, if your, your issue is trust, one of the best ways to overcome trust is to allow trial, to, to give people the opportunity to physically try the event with no risk, no obligation, and that will build trust because they've actually, whether it's, uh, I don't think this, beer, this low-carb beer is gonna taste any good, well, great, let's sponsor an event where we know there are a lot of people who drink beer, but maybe don't drink low-carb beer, But we can put them in an environment where their passions are engaged, they're open to trying new things, we have a sampling program, they get to taste the product, and that's a great way to overcome the business problem of a lack of trust, therefore, you're being eroded by a competitor. Whereas if if the predisposition has been made that we are doing sponsorship X for a particular reason, sometimes the core business problem might have been overlooked, and then it doesn't matter how great your activation is if it was never created with a core problem in mind.
0: As a marketer myself, I just got I just got goosebumps, that was great. You should always start with the business problem and explore what you can do to solve it rather than putting the solution first and then trying to find a problem that it might align with, which ultimately that never, well, it, sometimes it might work, but it, it, it rarely works, does it?
2: Absolutely, and you end up invariably paying more than you need to, so even if you were lucky enough to have landed on the right solution, you've ended up buying a whole bunch of assets from a rights holder which actually don't deliver against that problem. So you've arguably still solved your problem, but you've done it at twice the price you could have.
0: Great point. Let's shift gears for a moment and flip things. Recently, Octagon worked with Tennis Australia to create bespoke events in Shanghai, Tokyo and Singapore to launch the Australian Open. Why are rights holders who aren't based in Asia now focusing on Asian markets for sponsorship like that?
2: There's a, a, a really simple answer, and then there's a kind of simple answer. The, the really simple answer, which I'm sure Tennis Australia would, would be upset if I didn't say, is that the Australian Open has always been the grandson of Asia-Pacific. Whilst they've, they've removed that tagline from their logo when they did their recent rebranding, uh, it is considered by the, the, the sanctioning bodies, the fans, the players, as the grand slam of the entire region, even though it has the word Australian in its title. Beyond that, though... The slightly more complex answer, it comes back to something we mentioned earlier on in our chat, is that not only is, this, is there a gigantic population in this market, and it's, it's bigger than any other geographical market on the planet, it has this rapidly growing middle class. And that makes Asia a really compelling market for both local and global brands. I mean, China alone, and this is a statistic that is, is abused terribly by marketers around the world. but there's 1.3 billion people there, and in the last 10 years, they've gone from only 60% having a television in the house to now 95% of people having at least one television and, and many having multiples, and obviously many having now multiple screens outside of the traditional TV. So from a an audience point of view, the massive numbers have always been there. Historically... Sometimes that number has been misrepresented because you haven't had the ability to reach them because they've been in very rural communities which may not have access to the technology to to view that platform. But that's no longer the case, that you, you'll have massive populations in, in rural China that will have a streaming device in their pocket every day and they can engage with the thing you're talking to. And just to give you and the listeners a bit of an idea of scale, if you look back at some of the largest rating matches at the australian open over the last few years um espn broadcasted the nadal federer final in in 2017 and they had 1.13 million people tune into it a year later when hyong chung who was the, the young korean fella who, who had a real good crack at the australian open and, and made it to quarterfinals i think just in Korea alone, on the local broadcaster, he had 1.4 million viewers, so, th- so, so almost 300,000 more than the US had had for the, for, the, for the number one and number two seeds just a year earlier. And then if you go back to 2011, when Li Na, who was the first first and only um, Chinese player, male or female, to win an, an Open, won the French Open in 2011, on CCTV, the, the national broadcaster in China, Giving in mind that the US number was was one million, the Korean number was 1.4. In China, there was 116 million people that watched that single game. So from a scale, it's just in another ballpark. And that that scale of viewership is actually now translating to physical participation. Tennis as a as a platform in China has historically been looked at somewhat as an elitist kind of country club sport, but that's really changing. Um, even if you look at measures like um, participation, actually picking up a racket and playing. The Chinese Tennis Association in 2005 um, claimed that there was two million people in, in China that played tennis, which again when you look at their population is is a blip. It was really the upper echelons having a hit in a in a country club. Last year that two million had grown to thirty million. Wow. So it's 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 becoming a sport that is watched, that is participated in in a really big scale. So it's now not only a large audience but it's a
0: large accessible addressable audience great segue into my next question it's a large it's growing it's accessible how can brands who are sponsors of the australian open or maybe they're thinking about sponsoring the australian open how do they use an event like that a global event, but one that's obviously held locally in a very short period of time. How do they use it to engage that huge audience in Asia when maybe they aren't an Asian brand themselves?
2: Yeah, I look, I, I sometimes can be. Uh, people can think that I'm unfairly beating up on using TV exposure measure as a as a key success measure for sponsorship. And, and I'm, I'm certainly not intending to be. So I think the first thing I would say is TV exposure or, or media exposure, full stop, I, I should probably, I'm starting to show my age when I keep referring to TV. <laughs> Broadcast exposure, whether that be on a handheld device, on a television or on a computer screen, that is still very important because that is still allowing a brand that may not have been visible to an audience to now at least from a, a name point of view, a lot more visible. However, that's that's very much just the tip of the iceberg. I think we talked about American sponsors particularly being a bit more sophisticated and using the, the power of association, I guess the IP that comes along with association with big prestige global events. And I'll go back to the the 1573 example of the key here wasn't to make people aware of the brand. The Chinese market know that it exists. It was to make them feel like this brand, which was normally number three on the the priorities list. Now maybe it's jumped up a slot or two because, wow, it must be important because it is now sitting alongside Emirates Airlines and Kia Motor Vehicles and uh, MasterCard and all these big prestigious global brands. So the association you have not only with the event, but the company that you keep as the other sponsors tends to say a lot about who you are or who you want to be. You, you, I mean, you reference the Australian Open particularly. It, it As an event, whilst it does happen in Melbourne over a two-week period, it's part of a larger series which has events in other cities in Australia, in, in the Hopman Cup in, in Perth and the Sydney International and in Hobart and Brisbane. But it also has satellite events in the lead-up. It has wildcard events, and, and in fact, one of those is held in Shanghai. So there are opportunities that are of a smaller scale but are still associated with the larger event and then there's obviously the simple things that have happened for time in memoriam but continue to be important things like sales promotions buy a bottle go into the draw win tickets to melbourne you can't take 1.3 billion people to australia but you can certainly take a handful of them and then record capture demonstrate and broadcast back their experience to those others and they they kind of uh they, they have a, a better understanding of what it is like as a as a regular chinese consumer to, to experience these events
0: what's been your favorite asian-based sponsorship to work on and why
2: the first one is i mentioned it at the outset standard chartered bank and their partnership with liverpool football club they've been a client of ours for oh, coming up on four years now And it's just a really great example. This is a bank that has the vast majority of its customers in Asia and Africa, and they're using a sponsorship of a club in the north of England to to, to be their largest channel to these audiences. And it's a really good example, I think, of a brand who have used what on the surface could look like a weakness, being that remoteness from their partner, as a strength. And what they've done is that they've... They've made their entire positioning of this partnership being about bringing the fans closer to the team that they love. They've identified the fact that there are 850 million passionate Reds fans around the world and a disproportionately large percentage of them are in the same markets that the bank is operating. So as a a partner that shares that passion, we've worked with them over the last three or four years on delivering leverage campaigns that are very singular in their focus. It's all about bringing the fans closer to the team they love. We have run virtual reality programs for them where we've been able to take Asian, African and Middle Eastern fans on a virtual tour of the locker rooms to walk out onto the middle of Anfield whilst 57,000 fans are singing You'll Never Walk Alone to get those kind of tingles on the back of your, the, the back of your neck uh, that you would not only ever feel if you had the opportunity to make that trip to, to Liverpool, and 99% of those people will never have that opportunity. But the, the bank is bringing that experience closer to them. Um, we ran a campaign called The Power of Numbers, which was celebrating the 125th anniversary of the club, but doing it in a way that made sense to a, a remote audience, and, and it leveraged kind of the the interest of, or in numerology in Eastern markets, and rather than just talking about 125 years of the club, it analysed all of the different key numbers in the, the, the bank's history and in the club's history, and then brought them to life in really interesting and compelling ways. The other one that I think I, I'd love to, to mention briefly, and, and I didn't work on this, unfortunately, it's, it's one of those ones that you see the campaign and think, geez, I wish I'd had that idea. Um, and it's only quite recent is Aon, the the global insurer, and their sponsorship of the the PGA and the LPGA. They've um, they've launched this great uh, new idea called the Risk Reward Challenge. They've identified that the positioning that they want to have in amongst all of the other big insurers around the world is that they want to be all about being the smartest when it comes to analysing risk versus reward. So they've actually created a competition within the competition at the at the LPGA and the PGA that rewards golf's most strategic players so they identify a particular hole on each of the the main tour events and then uh, and that hole tends to be the hole that has the largest risk or reward maybe it's a a par three where if you shoot for the green you could also end up in the water so it depends on do you you lay up or do you go straight for the green and then they aggregate all of those holes together at the end of the year and then the male player and the female player who have the the best scores against their handicap for effectively that um, risk reward challenge win a million bucks each, which is a a significant amount of money. And the great thing about it is that both the men's and the women's are both the same. So it's the first time in golf where um, there's been men's prize money and women's prize money that's been equal. So not only are Rayon delivering a really interesting platform that talks to their brand positioning, but they're kind of challenging somewhat what the the prize money the way that the, the tennis did a few decades ago. And then finally, the, the Stand Red app, which I mentioned earlier, it is very, whilst it's beautifully designed and, and looks great, it's very functional at its core. It offers video wake-up calls. So if you're if you're a fan of Liverpool in Malaysia, the, the games are kicking off at 3 o'clock in the morning. So we give Malaysian fans the opportunity to program in where they are, what time zone they're in, and then 15 minutes before the game, we'll actually send them a video message, which is, one of the players, and I mentioned before the the importance of celebrity in in Asia, um, an actual player from the first squad will pop up like a Skype video call and wake them up and say, guys, get ready. We're about to run on the field. Thanks for being a fan. We're going to bring it home for you today. And each of those messages customised to that particular game, referencing the team they're playing, really just bringing those fans closer to the the, the team they love.
0: If you could take over the sponsorship portfolio at any brand in the world you get to choose with a view of engaging them in Asian based sponsorships so that can be a situation where they maybe aren't in Asia at the moment or maybe they are and you think that they can improve through some sponsorship which brand would it be and why
2: Hmm. interesting um, I think Amazon would be a really interesting one and the reason I say Amazon is that, and look, they are—they do already have a little toe in the water um, in sponsorships and not particularly Asian-based at this stage. Um, I believe that they sponsor sort of a third-level sponsorship with Bayern Munich and, and, and Real Bepis in, in La Liga in Spain. Um, but what's interesting, I think, about Amazon is that they are a brand that could actually play in three different spaces in the commercial sponsorship world, for lack of a better term, that Amazon Prime is a broadcaster and they already have broadcast deals where they're competing with the NBCs and the ABCs and the ESPNs and the Channel 7s and Channel 9s of the world as a broadcaster. Forget about sponsorship or anything else, they are in that part of the, the puzzle. Um, I also understand, and I don't know if this is is has happened yet, but there's been talk about them getting into ticketing so becoming effectively a supplier that that they could be competing with the likes of Ticketmaster and and, and Ticket Tech and StubHub and those kind of guys with becoming an, an online facilitator of purchase. And thirdly, the the traditional component of I guess sponsorship as a as a brand as a corporate partner, they're starting to already see some pretty aggressive competition from Alibaba in Asia who are offering. Cloud, cloud computing, which is a big part of the, the Amazon business. And with Alibaba now being in a, a, an official Olympic sponsor for the next couple of cycles, that's a brand that's investing billions of dollars into sponsorship. And, and I would imagine Amazon would probably be wanting to make sure they protect as best as they can that part of their business. So I think Amazon could be an interesting brand because they could be the first brand to do this real triple play, to be a broadcaster, a supplier and a traditional sponsor all at the same time, all in a single deal. And I think that could be really interesting.
0: Mm, that is interesting. My mind's uh, ticking away. Adam, if the listeners want to find out more about Octagon and Octagon's work and how they can help them or they want to connect with you directly, what can they do?
2: Uh, easiest place, octagon.com. Um, that will take you through to the, the homepage. And from there, you can go to each of our different markets around the world to, to see what we're up to. We're pretty active on LinkedIn, so please, me personally and the organization as a whole, very happy if anyone wants to reach out directly, adam.hodge at octagon.com. And then we're on all of the the normal places you'd expect, uh, at Octagon on Twitter. i warn you, it's a very US-centric feed, so if you like hockey, baseball, and basketball, great place to go. And then at Octagon on Instagram, if you want to kind of see the the more
0: fun side of the people behind the business. Outstanding. Adam Hodge, Head of Planning and Strategy APAC at Octagon. Thank you so much for taking us inside sponsorship in Asia. Fascinating chat. I don't know about you, but I get the sense that Asian brands may be behind other sponsorship markets in terms of their focus in that they focus largely on media exposure as a measure of success, but get the sense that they will, in fact, change and mature much faster than the time it's taken the rest of the industry and they'll actually catch up really, really quickly. Adam provided loads of great contact details at the end of the show there, so be sure to head to Sponsor.net for those that's a wrap for episode 66 of inside sponsorship i hope you enjoyed hearing from our guests and also don't forget if you'd like a shout out yourself just like joe did just get in contact and i'll make that happen for you we really do love to hear from you or if you're too shy Help make us feel special by leaving a review on iTunes. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at danielatsponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at Sponserve. And if you want to connect with Sponserve's commercial manager for Australasia, Daniel Ferguson-Hill, you can catch him on daniel.ferguson at core Software or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, just search for Sponsor. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcast. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.